Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for every new day that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that uh, every day is the day where Christ is reigning, where the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, and we pray that we would experience your power uh, through your Holy Spirit today, through your word uh, as we read it, as we meditate upon it, as it is preached. We pray that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as you meet us uh, with your very presence in the Holy Spirit. So please bless our thoughts this morning, bless our study, uh, lead us into all truth. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Apparently I have three more weeks, not just one more week. So today is not the penultimate day, uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's the third to last day. So, so I'm told, right? Okay, okay. So we're going to go more detail. I was going to try to cram way too much into one week, but now we can, we can spread it out. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Abraham and his commission uh, of blessing, Abraham and the blessing. And this is going to come to us uh, after the flood, after the covenant with Noah, but then also after a, a clear reminder that after Noah, the world is still fallen, and this world is still needs a final, a final redemption that can bring us back to uh, what we were supposed to have accomplished uh, through Adam. So a quick recap to really set the stage. We started this class talking about narrative understanding of Scripture, talking about the fact that the Bible comes to us as a big story uh, which has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The middle is punctuated with drama and conflict and these problems that the, the Bible is trying to address leading to a final conclusion, a telos. And we've talked a lot about the problems so far. And these problems, as with any story, they come to us defined based on our starting place. Uh, we started with a garden. We started with Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, made as the finite impression of the infinite God, made as the tangible material expression of God's glory uh, on the earth. And they were supposed to fill the earth and multiply and spread his glory all over the world as God's priest kings. Uh, the kings, being, being, having dominion over the animals, subduing the entire world, ruling creation, and uh, producing order out of the still unformed world um, that was created from the place of the garden, expanding outwards to cover the whole earth. And they were to do that as God's priests, those who had direct communion with God, direct fellowship with God, hanging on his every word, uh, receiving his commandments, receiving his goodness. And through this communion, they would be able to be empowered to exercise their kingly vocation. This whole package is, is God's image. Uh, humans were meant to have uh, uh, glory and honor. They were supposed to then apply this glory and honor uh, in four ways that we've talked about so far. They were to ex uh, realize their potential, to fill the earth and multiply and subdue the earth. They were to exercise responsibility by taking upon this, this, these commands and also to uh, see everything as coming from the very mouth of God, hanging on his every word. And they were to do this in communion with one another. Man and woman together is the image of God, not just man alone, not just woman alone, but the entire humanity, male and female, is the image of God. And they were to do that in communion, communion with God himself. And then they were to do that from a home base, from the Garden of Eden, which was, which was constructed 
built by God as a temple, the place where God dwelt up on a mountain. We know it's on a mountain because water's flowing out from Garden of Eden to spread throughout the whole earth. It's going from the high place down to, the, to water the whole earth. And that was their home, and it was to expand. But then uh, the fall happened. Uh, man, uh, enticed by the spiritual powers, evil power, uh, Satan, um, exercising his influence through the serpent, uh, he tempted the man and woman, and they believed a lie. They rejected God's word. They rejected uh, experiencing and fulfilling their vision through him and according to his commands, and they took a shortcut. They wanted to do it their own way. And that plunged the whole world into sin. And so the image of God became tarnished. It became, like this analogy I've said a couple times, um, like a beautiful masterpiece painting that just has tomato juice splattered all over it or a beautiful cathedral that's been bombed out. And you see, the, you see these few arches and you see some walls hanging up, but it's just not the same, right? And in terms of fitting this within the summary of image of God applied, we experience the reverse of that. Instead of potential, we experience powerlessness. We can't realize our potential. Uh, we've been duped by the devil, and we're still under his influence in fallen man, and we're powerless. We feel guilt. We anticipate punishment, and we deserve punishment for disobeying God. And we experience alienation from one another. And we, we no longer have the fellowship with our fellow man. Uh, we no longer have fellowship with God. Instead, the human relationships are characterized by competition and strife and animosity and setting each other against themselves in a perpetual game of one-upmanship where we ultimately leading to violence, wanting to kill one another. We see in Cain and Abel, and we see that leading to a world of violence that the world experienced immediately before the flood. And then we have exile from the garden, being banished from, from Eden. And so that was after week five. And so... If you've been tracking along at this point, uh, we see it's bad. Uh, man's failing, not fulfilling his vocation the way he should. So what's the solution? What do we do? Well, then we talked about wrong solutions. We talked about fake dominion for two weeks. And fake dominion is really epitomized in the scriptures as city building. And the archetype of, of the fake dominion project is Babylon, the city of man that tries to uh, ascend to the heavens in the Tower of Babel, making a name for itself. God thwarts that, but Babylon still continues throughout the biblical narrative as this evil city set against Zion and against the city of God. We also talked about not just this kind of power project where we try to, through self-will, selfish ambition and pride and violence, uh, realize our vocation of dominion over the world, But um, we talked about this kind of vicarious dominion, which is, I think, more prevalent in our day, uh, where we want to seize upon a fruit of God's good order. We want to experience a piece of God's blessing, but we want to do it in the wrong way. So we talked about video games as kind of a fake conquest, you know, virtual dominion that doesn't really accomplish anything in life. It just gives you a diversion from the work you probably should be doing, or pornography, uh, gives you a physical sensation, um, a chemical reaction in your brain, followed by a, you know, a perverse physical experience that mimics in a very low way uh, a, a small piece of the entire marriage relationship. And uh, we saw that 
even Abraham and Sarai engaged in fake dominion when they tried to go about God's plan of producing a promised offspring in their own strength through uh, Hagar, and they took matters into their own hands, tried to produce something that God promised, but in all the wrong ways. Again, vicarious dominion. I think there's different ways we could go about this, but we see this all in our world. We talked mostly about um, video games and pornography, but you can also see uh, this in just all the ways that we try to try to take shortcuts um, and you know prop up our existence through these just these fake means. Um, ultimately, uh, fake dominion gets us nowhere, and we now see ourselves in the story in Genesis six, where the world's covered in violence. Uh, God has to intervene. Because in Genesis 6, we've got a historic, the sin is characterized, the sinful state is characterized as man's thoughts were only evil continually. Continually. It's, uh, this is evil on steroids. And God chose to cleanse the world, but also rescue humanity by preserving humanity through one family. And he preserved them in an ark with all the animals and they went through God's waters of judgment and were preserved from the waters of judgment in this ark. And that through this process, God then recreated the world after the flood. Uh, the world started formless and void with darkness in um, uh, the deep waters over the whole world. And the spirit was hovering over the waters. And we see this similar imagery uh, depicted again at the end of the flood where the whole world is covered with water. And the wind blows over the water, the ruach blows over the water, and we see God forming the world anew. But this time, the world is formed anew under grace, under grace. And uh, the the covenant sign of this grace is the rainbow. God makes a covenant with Noah and all his offspring that he will never again flood the world, that he will preserve creation. You'll have summer and winter, you'll have sun rise and set, you'll have seed time and harvest, and that these things won't happen um, because man has propitiated God. It's, it's, it's because God has chosen to preserve the world through his common grace that he gives to everyone. And this then becomes this new starting point for God's redemptive plan, that God is preserving the world. In the way it covenant, it doesn't bring us back to the beginning, it just preserves And now the stage is set for the next step. The next step. And so um, God begins to put in motion a plan of redemption. And now why, I want to spend some time here and let's flush this out amongst ourselves. Why does God need to then take the next step and continue his plan of redemption with Abraham? What about the Noah story? And the events that happen after that story tell us that something more is needed. So think about what happened to Noah after the animals came out of the ark, after the covenant was made. If you remember your Bible history, what happens to Noah? What does he do? He plants a vineyard. So far, so good. You know, if you just stop in the middle of a sentence right there, you'd say, hey, uh, we got Noah in covenant with God. Got a new creation, plant in the garden. All right, we're off to a good start. This is great. Maybe Noah's going to be the promised seed who will 
crush the serpent. But then, then what happens? Yes. He gets drunk. And then something very shameful happens between him and his son. Um, and new curses are pronounced. Right? Noah pronounces curses upon Ham, but also a promise of blessing upon Shem, and then Japheth, who will dwell in the tents of, Sh- of Shem. So we also experience kind of a new fall and a new curse, it gets, it just in, in a very compressed form, but it's, it's the same basic storyline. So, okay, so Noah's not going to be the one. Um, well, maybe Noah's son, maybe Shem can get things right. Maybe world history will continue and someone will get it right. What happens after Noah? We have this genealogy of all the nations. And we read the main, one of the main characters in that narrative is this guy named Nimrod. And he's the one who builds Babylon. He's a son of Ham, or a grandson of Ham. He builds uh, Babylon and Nineveh. And then what happens in Babylon? Tower of Babel. What, what's going on there? We talked about it a little bit, but let's just flush it out again. It's a good review. Right. Right, the fake dominion project gets kicked off. So this is all after the covenant with Noah. And what we see here, albeit it's not as violent and it's not as historically off the charts as Genesis 6, but the fundamental dynamic is still essentially the same. We're in a fallen world where humans collectively are going about their own salvation, their own uh, fake dominion project. And we get to the end of Genesis 11, and uh, we see that we're still in the same spot. So, so if you're, again, think about this going back to the first day of class. We've got the start of the story, creation. We've had this drama. We've got a couple of cycles of a similar story going on here, right? Of God picking a man, God doing something through that man, God promising something. So if you're reading the Bible for the first time, what hope would you want to anticipate? Like, what, what would you hope would happen at this point? What, what would you be longing for to come about at this point in the story? Man to obey God. Man to obey God? Yes. Someone please get it right. Can we, can we, come on, anybody. A new champion. Okay. Real dominion. Right. Repentance. Good. Yeah, all these things. We, we, want, we want to... Uh, and where do we... You know, dominion, plant a real garden, plant a better city. We want real obedience. We, we want to get back to where things were at to begin with. Right? But we want them to be fulfilled. We want them to keep going. And Absolutely. And so what we're going to read today, we're going to spend some time in Genesis 12. So you can turn your, your Bibles to Genesis 12. Um, that's right. That's the hope. That's, what, that's the narrative tension that you should be feeling in the Bible as you, as you get to this point. We've got a couple promises here. We've got this promise in Genesis 3.15 that the, a seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. We've got now a promise given through Noah that Shem will be uh, a source of blessing. Noah says of Shem, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Um, Blessing. 
blessing. There's still going to be blessing in the world. Where's this, but where's this blessing going to come from? How are we going to get there? So let's read about what God plans to do next. So uh, Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, actually, let's, let's back up. Let's, uh, let's read some genealogy here because this is important. So now these are the generations of Terah in uh, Genesis eleven twenty-seven. Let's back up there. And Genesis, again, literarily speaking, just a footnote here, literarily speaking, the Bible is broken up into 12 sections that all start with these are the generations of, boom. So don't follow your English translation uh, section headings. Those are not inspired, even though they're in the Bible, and they're in black ink, and they're bold. They're not inspired. They're many times in the wrong place. Um, and also, the chapter numbers, believe it or not, are not inspired either. Did you know that? Like, the numbers of the verses and the, the numbers of the chapters, those are added afterwards. So, they're helpful. Oftentimes, they're helpful, but, but, but um, that's not how the Bible came to us. They're added as a tool, tool to help us. So, what the Bible came to us with is these big, big section headings. Now, these are the generations of Terah. And Terah is a descendant of Shem. Okay, so... Shem's going to be blessed. Now we are several generations away from Shem, and this is where the story picks up again. So Genesis eleven twenty seven, reading through Genesis 12, uh, 3. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, let's stop there. So Chaldea... Closer to Babylon, right? We're in the east. Okay, again, think back to the story. We started in the Garden of Eden. Where were they exiled from? Or, or what, in what direction were they exiled? East. They were sent east. Okay. So the geography here is important to understand the significance of some of these promises. So Ab- Ab- uh, Terah and his family, they're in the east. Okay, so that's, that's where we're starting. Verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's going to be really important too. Pay attention to that. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." I'll read the next verse. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, and then they eventually get to Canaan. So, uh, to help us kind of walk through this, I've given you this chart um, in a handout. If you don't have one, there's one up there. But, uh, and this is to kind of put in context 
these, these blessings that God's giving. So, uh, before we jump into the chart, though, let's just kind of, let's just take the verses as they come to us. So, what's, um, what's God's command, and what does he say he's going to do? Let's break it down. Leave your kindred, right. What else? Go to a land I will show you. Right. Although we do know it's, it's kind of, it's, it's almost like his dad started the project and then stopped. And it's kind of, all right, you, you, you keep going. Don't, don't stop. Keep going. What else? So we got go, go to a land. Okay. And then what, after that, what's going to happen? What's going to happen in the land? Great, right? Exactly. Now remember, he's his wife's barren, so this is a pretty big promise to a, to a to a man who doesn't have any kids yet. And what is he going to experience in that land besides becoming a great nation? Blessing. Okay. You said blessing also. So is he going to be blessed too? Yeah, he's going to be blessed. Right. He's going to be blessed and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay. We'll come back to that. And then what else? There's one other thing here. Make his name great. Good. Everything's been positive so far. Is there anything negative here? Yes. Right. There's, there's cursing here. Um, but the cursing is now not just the whole world. It's, it's like associated with the converse of whatever God's going to do with, with Abraham. So it's, it's a little different. Something, something shifted here. Um, God's taking the side of, of, of one man and his family. And um, he's now associating... His curse, not just upon all of humanity, but the curse is going to be upon those who are not connected to this, this family. Okay, so good. I, all those pieces are super important. And what I want us to see, though, is do these promises sound familiar? Have we heard any of these promises before? Maybe different words, but similar ideas. And what can, what can you think of? in terms of the similarities. Yes? Right, right. You can't make a nation if you don't have kids, right? You got to, this guy is just one family, so he's got some work to do, right? Um, and specifically, uh, fruitful and multiply, right? There's, there's an echo of that there, Right. And then what else? What are some other parallels we see here? Not all at once now. 
Starts with a B. Ends in a D. Blessed. Uh, did someone say blessed? Yes, great. Blessed. Blessing. Right, blessing is really huge. This is, this is you know, God starts, God, God caps off his creation of the world in Genesis 1 with, and God blessed them, right? And then God caps off his new creation in, his, in the intro to his covenant with Noah by saying, God blessed them. God blessed Noah and his sons. Which again, when it says God blessed Noah and his sons, that's literally all of humanity right there because that's, that's the only guys that, that survived. And then here it says, I will bless you. And not just bless you, but anyone who's not connected to you or anyone that's not caught up in your honor is going to be cursed. Right? So there's a, there's a funneling of how God's blessing is going to, to remain. This, this is critical. And so um, the nation piece, a great nation, and the fact that um, his name's going to be great, there, there's this idea of you're going to have influence at the very least. Um, I, I think this is also a, an allusion to, to kingship, to to this, this type of dominion of subduing and ruling the earth, that uh, there's going to be through Abraham and his offspring and through this nation that he's going to build, this is how uh, ruling of the earth is going to uh, come about, this restoration of the vocation. And if you skip ahead, Genesis 14, Melchizedek, this priest that Abraham meets uh, in the land of Canaan, he makes that connection. He says in uh, Genesis 14, verse 19 through 20, Melchizedek, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Um, Let me see here. And then God continues this in rehashing his promises to Abram when he says in Genesis 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. So, again, this is all wrapped up in, I'll make you a great nation, I'll make a name for yourself. There's this idea of kingly dominion is going to come through uh, Abram, and his offspring. So, I've uh, this chart that I've given you. I think um, this is my best attempt to kind of make these connections uh, more readily apparent. And the point of this chart is really to persuade you that the promises to Abraham are are the same promises that are at the foundation of our calling as humans. What God is promising here isn't just blessing in the abstract. It's not just fruitfulness so you can have a nice life with lots of kids and go about your merry way. It's, it's a covenant and a promise to restore through Abraham the very vision and purpose for the creation of the whole world. It's cosmic promises made uh, to bring the earth to where it was supposed to go from the very beginning. Yes? Just to further what you're saying, um, an interesting 
then was of ground. Hmm. And Adam himself is taken from the ground. And so just just a comment in the Hebrew in the Hebrew text, it's actually saying that what what you're saying is that through Abraham, all of humanity moves from the ground. Right. Excellent. Great. Thanks for that. Yeah, all of so um, just for the sake of the recording, I guess the last uh, the fam- the word families in verse three uh, is is literally the ground, um, uh, and so the idea of man coming from the ground, and so this promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham is is the blessing that will come upon all of humanity. And real quick here, I we've we've had this um, to explain this trajectory and how this is going to happen because what we're getting into is you know it, again. Just fast forward through the rest of your Bible knowledge. Abraham is the father of the children of Israel. Israel becomes this chosen nation that uh, we see has its own trajectory really in the rest of the Old Testament. And so, uh, but, but we really got to understand what's going on here. Because the Jews in first century didn't get it. Right? They thought, well, let me just ask you guys. So when it says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed... Let's just ask the question that Paul spends most of his ministry trying to refute. Does that mean you have to be a biological son of Abraham to be blessed? No. No. So something, that's not what this means. This is not, this is the only race of people who's going to be blessed. Rather, this family is going to be the source of blessing that will again go through the entire world. Um, so, we have this, I've got this, this J-curve where we talk about the narrative plot of the Bible. We've got creation, fall, redemption. And if you were to kind of you know, take this piece out, we've got this line, right? This trajectory towards restoration. And if we were to then take this line and make it parallel and like look into it, what's, the, what's this redemption look like? Oops. Get ahead of myself. Um, we would see we got this. Uh, we, we get this shape. Okay, and this is all the all the earth, and this is all the earth. Okay, so this is fallen humanity, and this is redeemed humanity. All right, and what God's doing here by picking Abraham is he's gonna he's gonna focus the plan of redemption. Into, into one offspring, which is Jesus. And then through Jesus, he's going to rebuild all of humanity. Okay, this, this is the idea of, of how Abraham is, is the source of the blessing. It's not that God picks out Abraham and only those who are biologically connected to him get to go to heaven. That's not what we're talking about, right? Nor is it that we just need to... Um, uh, do the sacrifices that, that again, are given to Abraham's children, right? Need to adopt his rituals. Well, maybe we don't need to be biologically related to Abraham. Maybe we just need to be circumcised like Abraham. You know, be, be, be engrafted into his ethnic community and adopt the rituals of his family that were given to us through Moses. Maybe that's what it means. And that's, that's not fundamentally what it means. What it means is that this family is going to be the one through whom a biological 
offspring is going to come, who's going to be the hero, the conqueror, who's going to lead us into true dominion and to take upon himself the true vocation of humanity and crush the seed of the serpent. But, the, but he's got to be a real human, right? Jesus is not just some phantom that comes and possesses some random person, like the Gnostics believed, and did some magical tricks and accomplished this great feat of strength and then goes back to heaven. Jesus is a real biological person who's got a real biological heritage because he's really, truly human. So I, I, we've grown up learning that, that truth most of our lives, but I can't stress like how profound that truly is and that this is what God is promising to do and how he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. He's going to focus the plan of redemption in one nation. Eventually, it's going to get narrowed you know, further uh, to uh, you know, David, right? One, one family even further until we get to, to, get to one man. But then, this is kind of getting ahead of us. I just want to get you a sense where we're going. Through Jesus and through those who were connected to him, vitally connected to him, What's that connection? What is that? How do, you, how do we get to be part of him? Hold that question in your thoughts. But through him, God's going to recreate the world. So um, there's a lot there. We're going to unpack it in the next three weeks. But uh, that's, that's the Abraham project. That through Abraham, God is going to bring about an offspring who's going to save us and bring us back to where we need to go. Any thoughts? I'm introducing this, this schematic, but it shouldn't be, hopefully it's not new. I'm just maybe using some different words, but this is, should just be basic, classic Christianity. Um, I'll leave that up there. Uh, but to continue this, um, so spend some time with this chart. I, I think you'll find it helpful. Um, I've also superimposed this image of God applied um, vocabulary that we've been developing, the glory, the potential, responsibility, communion, and home. And we're now seeing these things restored, at least in the, God's promised form. God's going to exalt Abraham. He's going to take them. He's going to make them something that he's not already. There's exaltation. He's going to empower him by, by um, causing kings to come from him and giving him children. He's going to keep covenant with Abraham. Uh, and he's going to produce real obedience in him that allows him to fulfill his responsibility. Uh, he's going to reconcile all of humanity through, um, through Abraham's offspring. And then he's, you see the Exodus story in very seed form starting here. right? Abraham's going out of the Chaldeans, out of and back into uh, the promised land. Now, couple things here. Yes, go for it. Why does the genealogy of Christ start with Abraham and not Well, it does. Um, and that's what Luke, Luke's genealogy kind of directs us to. Luke, Luke, yeah, Matthew starts with Abraham. Um, Luke, though, connects Christ to, to humanity itself. 
Yes. Um, so a couple of things here. Let's look at. Let's look at. I want to look at Abraham's response to all this, because this should inform our response as well to this this big plan. How does Abraham respond? What does he do? In chapter twelve. At least the first part of chapter twelve, I should say. He went, he goes, he obeys, he hears. Wow, incredible. Now, how old is he? 75. Who hears over 75? Two people, three people, four people. Right. So you can take that one of two ways. Like, all you guys got a little more time before you sit around your parents' house and, uh, you know, don't make something of your life. Uh, it's not too late. But also, I mean, this is, I, I just think if, uh, you know, I'm only 35. And I've not listened to God's call in many areas of my life, right? None of us have. And yet, be encouraged that even when you're 75, God's call can still come to you, and you can respond. Um, today is the day of salvation. So don't, just don't miss that, little, that small little fact. No matter, no matter how much of your life has passed, God's call still comes to you. If it comes to you today, it doesn't matter how old you are, He's calling you to act, and he's calling you to respond. Yeah. So was that his salvation experience? He came to him taking family, didn't he? Yeah, well, he's been a line of Shem, and we got people in Canaan who were worshiping the true God. Melchizedek's there. You might be right. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly, and, and that's and that's the point of common grace. That that, that com- even before the clear promises given to Abraham about how the seed is going to come into the world to bless all the nations, we see God at work preparing the soil, so to speak, for the word to fall on it and produce a harvest. You know, when, when Christ gives the parable of sowing the seeds and the seed falls on good soil, you know, someone had to make that soil good. 
Someone had to cultivate that earth, right? And, and you see that with, with Abraham uh, being in, in some kind of family that was in a position to respond to God. And then he goes to a land and he's got this encounter with Melchizedek, right? And this, the encouragement that comes from Melchizedek, who's, who's um, of a priestly order that we don't fully understand, um, but that the Bible gives a whole lot of significance to. In Psalm 110 and in Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, um, Melchizedek was a real priest to a real God who was operating under the covenant of common grace. And again, lots of mystery and just, but bottom line, yeah, there was, there was a real response, even with, without all of the promises uh, holding it up. But what we see in Abraham is, yes, I, I think whether you call this his conversion, whether you call it, uh, Abraham's story, if you read Genesis 12 through 22, should be taken all together. It's a story of, of faith, and the first act of faith uh, is his response to the call, uh, and it's a response of obedience. And what's implicit, what's implicit in that obedience? What does Abraham have to believe to take God at his word? What is he specifically believing? What is the object of Abraham's faith at this point? It's not, it's not Jesus of Nazareth in that crystal clear form, right? So, but what's, his, what's the object of his faith in a much fuzzier, opaque form? What is he, what is he believing? Yes. Yes. Right, exactly. It's, it's the object of his faith is the promised offspring. But it's also, it's not just faith in that as a fact. If you, if you came into, um, I taught this class on um, saving faith um, in our confession, and believing in the fact, the objective, verifiable fact that an offspring is going to come is essential to faith. But there is also a belief in your connection to that offspring, right? And I would argue the, op, the, the, the faith of Abraham here is, is the belief not just that there is somewhere, someplace, some offspring, but that I am part of that offspring. I am part of that plan. That offspring has something to do with me. I'm connected to that. And I'm going to act in faith to bring the plan of that offspring into fruition, right? Again, fast-forwarding to, to today. You hear the gospel that Jesus is that offspring, and you believe that what he was about in this world some, has something to do with you. And when you believe that gospel, you're, you're saying, my life is connected to this seed, and I'm going to live the rest of my life on the basis that that promise and who he is in the world is going to have something to do with me, so I better get on board. I better get on board right now. And I better get my whole family on board. And I better pick up everything I'm about, and I better move it in that direction. Because the train's leaving the station. If I'm not on board, it's, it's, it's going to be too late. Yes? Ultimately, Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham's faith was directed 
Right. 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 Yes. And you see that in reiterations of these promises throughout. You'll see in Genesis 17, uh, God says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Walk before me and be blameless. This idea of communion with God. Walking in holiness, set apart for his purposes, right? That just, it just builds. That's why I say you got to take the, don't, don't, don't think of Abraham's life as, as, I mean, the sequence does matter. I'm not saying sequence doesn't matter, but um, it, it's, it's a story. God's developing this narrative, and, and more clues are getting added with each iteration, right? Now, let's take another setback. Uh, is Abraham's life one consistent uh, walk? of perfect obedience, always going in the right direction. No, no, no. What, what happens after he gets to Canaan? Where does he go? He goes to Egypt, which is really bad. This is, this is Egypt's bad things happen in Egypt, right? Every time someone in the Old Testament decides to go to Egypt, it's never a good thing. Um, and uh, that's, that's the start of a narrative cycle uh, with, uh, with the rest of the Bible. And so we have to be delivered from Egypt to get back on track. That's, that's a, another theme throughout the scriptures. But, but what you get is you get this seesaw throughout Abraham's life of promise, Abraham blows it. Promise, Abraham blows it. Promise, Abraham blows it. And then you get to this, this last test, which we're going to talk about much more next week, of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And you get this sense where... Uh, not this sense, this is, I think, what the story is. You have a very flawed man, and he lives by faith, and he's not judged according to um, his merit. He's judged and reconciled to God because of his faith, period. And that faith is tested and tried, and there's lots of steps forward and backward, but when it really counts, when it really counts, when it needs to count, God provides and upholds his faith at the time where it matters most. And, that's, and that's, that's why he's the father of all who believe. It's that, that's the Christian life, that was the life of Abraham, and that's the life of faith. Yes? Just, I don't know, that's how I've always thought of like, covenant theology in general, right? Like, the story of Noah brings us into this place of God won't destroy us right now. And that's our relationship with the Lord. God won't destroy us. That's that common grace. Praise God. But it's not the place of where God brought us with Abraham of, I'm going to have this relationship with you, in a sense, regardless of your actions. Obviously, there's that faith component, but it's not because of your goodness or your righteousness. It's because of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of opens those floodgates, and that's why, through Abraham, you know, we're all connected in that sense, and all the families of the earth are blessed. Right. Right. Yeah, faith, faith is, the, is how this all happens. This is not, because this is kind of the, the capstone to what we've just been talking about. Does Abraham experience in his own personal life everything that he's promised? No. No, he gets one kid. <laughs> one kid. 
and he gets to buy one burial plot for his wife. That's what he gets. He gets. Well, yeah, but uh, you can't. No, that, that's a good point. Even, even. See, this is this is. I'll bless those who bless you. And I'll curse those who curse you. That promise makes its way even to Ishmael. <laughs> uh, so it's like even when Abraham screws up, um, God's promise still applies. God, God brings blessing even to the fruit of Abraham's fake dominion. So yeah, that, that, that's a very good point. Um, so he does uh, um, experience that. Um, and, and you also, well, I'll stop there. Um, he doesn't experience it all. So he is, as, as Dave said, he, he's approaching these things as one who sees them from afar. He's, he's hoping in this. And I think this, this introduces, and this is a great way to characterize, like, what's dominion applied today? Um, we have the dominion that we can achieve through common grace um, by God's uh, preserving the world in and through humanity. Um, so we have court systems that still do justice. We have bridges that still hold up people. We still have you know, wonderful uh, arts and culture and things like that, but it doesn't bring us back full circle. But then we have what is the type of dominion that brings us back full circle. And it's a walking by faith towards this vision of what dominion ought to be and embracing it from afar. And we're going to get more in this next week. Um, I alluded to it at the end of last week. We'll allude to it this week. And I think one way to kind of uh, poorly illustrate this idea of, um, as the fire alarm goes off, which is a signal for me to wrap this up, uh, I want to leave you with three illustrations that might sound kind of chintzy, but again, I want to prime the pump for, for next week of, of we need to walk with dominion even by common grace, but we need to anticipate a dominion that's going to be fulfilled uh, through God. Little Orphan Annie. You guys watched that Broadway show? Or seen it? Little Orphan Annie. I think captures a little bit of this. Two other stories. So Little Orphan Annie, she's this orphan in New York City. She thinks her parents are still alive, but they've uh, just kind of had to put her in an orphanage, and she's, kind of, she's devoted to finding them. And that's, that's what gives her hope, that one day she's going to meet her parents. One day she's going to find them, and she, she tries to escape the orphanage to try to go look for her parents. And eventually we find out that her parents, they really are gone, that they, they're not there. But she has this hope that I'm going to get back to where I should be. I'm going to get back to with a real family where I can live life. And she has this optimism uh, in this state of anticipating getting back to her old family. That's where the story early on in the movie, or the show, you know, tomorrow. You know, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you, tomorrow. And what, what is that song except capturing faith and common grace? It, it's this faith in, in, like, the faithfulness of the universe is going to smile upon me as I'm looking for my family. Right? And that's why it's so beautiful, because it's just this innocent belief in... in um, in common grace and God's faithfulness in that, in that sense. And yet, it's not enough because she's got no family. Like she's an orphan. She's literally an orphan. And no amount of optimism in, her, in common grace and in, in that covenant uh, is sufficient to get her what she needs. What she needs is 
And what she ultimately receives is someone to adopt her. She needs a real father to enter the picture and take her into his home, and that's what Daddy Warbucks is, this billionaire. He comes, and he rescues her, and he falls in love with her, and he adopts her as his own daughter. And so that, you, you need that kind of intervention into the story to bring us back to something real. Optimism and God's common grace, but we need something real. And what it is, it's an encounter with the Father. We need God to come to us in some way. You also see this with, um, in Lion King, where uh, Simba, he knows the Pride Lands have been destroyed by Scar, and he knows he needs to go back and be the king, but he doesn't have the power. He's, he's a washed-up uh, guy who's living with his bums in the oasis, eating bugs and grubs, and you know, it's the equivalent of a guy living in his basement playing video games all day and just, you know, a bum. And this dose of reality comes and hits him and says, you got to go back to the Pride Lands and rescue us. He's like, I can't, I'm not, not who you think I am, you know, guy with an identity crisis, you know. What brings him out of this stupor is an encounter with Mufasa in the heavens. He needs an encounter with, the, with God, with his father, with, to tell him, like, no, uh, I live in you. Uh, you have the power through me to fulfill your calling. I give these two examples because they resonate with the fundamental human condition that we all know we experience, which is that God is with us, but we are not where we should be. And what we need is God to come to us and bring us back to where we're supposed to go. And this is the plot line of every coming-of-age story in Western civilization. It's always, I'm on a mission, I hit a brick wall somewhere, and it's an encounter with a higher spirit, usually a father figure, that propels the figure to accomplish the goal. And that's what you see in Abraham, fundamentally, is he hits these walls, and what comes to him is God's promise of faithfulness. And ultimately, um, we're going to see in the, his encounter with God on Mount Moriah with um, Isaac that what he experiences there um, is, is a life out of death um, experience. And so I want to leave you with that because... Um, there's this, there's this tension with the life of faith that uh, we need to wrestle with um, in, the, in the coming weeks ahead. So with that, we'll stop. Um, if you have any questions, you can see me afterwards. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for this day. Thank you that you have come to us and um, that you have shown your glory, glory as of, as of the Father, full of grace and truth, and that that glory has come to us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Elder Brother, our King, our Redeemer, and the promised seed of Abraham. I pray that we would have faith to lay hold of him, to believe in your promises, to live as if the hope of the resurrection is the most important thing in the whole entire universe, um, and to sell all we have and, and buy the pearl of great price, to buy the field of priceless treasure, and to leave all we have, to leave our Father's house and go into the land of promise. Please give us that kind of faith, and bless us this day through Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.